Avi on Money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to 101.9 High FM. It's 8 minutes past 12. Thank you so much for joining us. And we are sitting in our new studios. Wayne, Bakari, welcome to Thank our new you. studios. Yes, very fancy. And it's a great honor to have you here. You Thank were, you. you held me, you held my hand about six years ago when I did my first show. And I didn't know what to do. And we were sitting in the old studio. So it's great to welcome you here. Wayne, no, let's get straight you. into it. Um, just for those of you who don't know, Wayne McCurry is a market commentator. I'm almost a, a household name in South Africa. Every radio station, any time there's anything that people really want digested in a way that is palatable, Wayne's the man to go to. Wayne, what on earth is going on around the world? And let me just give us a bit of a background to that. The Trump administration came in. The American markets solidified and started to grow. Job numbers really went up. Unemployment went down. Um, a lot of politics backwards and forwards. I love to go on CNN just to see how much they hate him. Yes. And then sort of unravel what's really going on. Um, but there was just a sense of euphoria, like all of a sudden the gears have all kicked in. There's traction and we're going forward. And then things seem to slow down. So let's maybe just take a, a, a macro picture, a bit sure. of a bird's eye view. What on earth is going on? Okay. Look, I mean, Obviously, when, whenever we look at economics, we must understand that South Africa is clearly part of the global economic system. We're not isolated in here. Obviously, domestic factors can influence us, positive and negative. But by and large, and it's hard to pick a percentage, probably 70% or 60% of what happens in South Africa is dependent on what's happening overseas. So you've always got to look at that when you try and evaluate what's uh, what current conditions and what you expect future conditions to be in South Africa. So let's take a quick cruise of the world, I suppose you can say it that way. In 2008, there was a global financial crisis, and all crises are triggered by excess debt. So whenever the debt bubble burst, whatever asset that debt supported, so whether there was excess mortgage bonds that supported the housing market, etc., etc., this time around it was excess debt I suppose supporting very fancy financial instruments in 2008. That bubble burst, the world came close to a catastrophe. To avert the catastrophe, interest rates in the developed world were slashed to zero, effectively, and central banks printed and injected, I don't know, pick a number, $10 trillion. <laughs> I mean, just pick a number, whether it's 10 or $15 trillion, but it's obviously a massive amount of, num- of, of money that was put in the system to save the housing market, and to save the banks, essentially. It worked. Okay, so 10 years later. That was what we refer to as quantitative easing. Yes, quantitative easing, but, I mean, I've got a little saying about quantitative easing. It sounds a lot more sophisticated than printing money, but, but that's what it was. <laughs> you know, when a person said we are embarking on a on a phase of quantitative easing, people will nod their heads and it will sound, you know, like it's really. Sophisticated. It's, yeah, but it's not. They just printed money and threw it at the problem. But it worked. So 10 years later, the world's economy is on a reasonably good footing. There obviously are problems, and the biggest single problem is excess government debt. Not so much private debt. Private debt, people got such a fright in 2008. They're quite cautious on private debt. Companies almost got went bankrupt in 2008 with excess debt because there it was very favorable. Shareholders liked you carrying excess debt. Now they're all scared, so there's very little excess corporate debt. 
but there's a lot of government debt. Now, lucky enough for us, governments can carry debt a lot longer than you and I or a company can. And, of course, they can increase revenue just by changing the law. They can increase taxes. So there's only the one problem sitting around now lingering in the system, excess government debt. The point is, though, the whole quantitative easing and the whole low interest rates worked. But now you've got inflation creeping back into the system and interest rates are going up globally. So they're not very high. I doubt whether they'll get back to previous high levels, but the point is they're no longer zero. They are now significantly higher than zero. And it's this cost of money and the change of the cycle that's turning the world a little bit against emerging markets, whether that's South Africa or Turkey or Argentina. So it's a change in a cycle as to why we are now experiencing this this soggy feeling here, why the rand's fallen from, call it 1180 to the 1330, 1340, where it is today. It's global events. So the first one is, as I've mentioned now, a change in the cycle. You know, money is still cheap overseas, but it's not as cheap as what it was. So therefore, people be more inclined to keep money at home now because they can put it in the bank. The U.S. economy is doing very, very well. They don't have to come to emerging markets to look for yield. And then the second thing is President Trump and this trade war. Now, this is potentially the most dangerous. I hope it's just noise. I hope it's just a politician talking. But well, one thing we every know about day President it seems Trump to get worse. Is he's one of the guys that uh, his saber-rattling tends to end up at war. Yes, unfortunately. Look, I hope it's just saber-rattling. I hope it's not anything because if he does institute massive new tariffs on Chinese imports, but he's not just against the Chinese, he's against all trade partners. I mean, he calls his, he calls his friends idiotic and stupid and, you know, you, you I mean, it, I, I don't know whether it's planned or whether it's just erratic, but this whole talk of trade war could be potentially the biggest economic disaster we've had in 50 years. What is President Trump looking to achieve? Man, I think he's just looking to achieve to to make more people vote for him and to secure his second term. I think this is a purely political vote-gathering exercise. He's playing to his support base. His support base likes him being tough. His support base likes him threatening people. He likes... Somehow that's sort of, I, I, I don't know, it, it's not logical. I mean, it, his current methodology of governing or his policies fly in the face of what America's been doing for 60 years. I mean, America's been the big proponent of global economic uh, freedom, you know, free trade. You can trade with whoever you want to, just, you know, to kill restrictions on the ability from goods to move from country to country now. We're relying on China, which is a communist country, to be the leader of global free trade. Whereas the America is now under President Trump is very anti-free trade because somehow he thinks other people are getting a better deal than America. America's not coming first. The problem is America is coming first. And unfortunately for Americans, if he does follow this path, they're the most vulnerable of all the countries because they suffer from one of the, they've got the biggest what's called a current account deficit, they import as a percentage of their economy significantly more than what they export. So they they can, other countries imposing retaliatory tariffs on America can actually do 
more damage to America than what America can do to them. Well, isn't the whole logic is that if we if stuff is more expensive to bring into America, mm. we will therefore stimulate Boost manufacturing in America, yeah. create more jobs, create efficiencies, yeah, this create is the scale. Exactly correct, but that's the irony. America, no one's unemployed. They have got the lowest unemployment rate in recorded history. It's sitting at 4%, and that 4% simply just don't want to work. There's, there's more jobs than people. So that, that's the irony of it. Why must you, you know, if you had a 20% or a 40% unemployment rate, you would consider trying to bring jobs back home. There's no unemployment in America. That's the great irony of it. American economy is actually pumping. It's maybe pumping a little bit too much because you're worried about inflation. But there's no economic hardship or woes in America at all. And, of course, why did those jobs leave America? It's because it was cheaper to do it somewhere else. Correct. That's why it left America. And in America, when you look in the last, call it 30 years, America's created enormous amount of new jobs. As I said, unemployment there is 4%. In fact, I think it's slightly below 4%. But they've created jobs in different areas. America is the technology leader. It's software. It's not bashing metal. So why do you want to slap tariffs on motor cars coming in from China? I mean, China can make the motor cars better than what you can. And you leading the world in, let's call it for want of a better word, technology, whether that's... IT or space or aeroplanes or whatever, they are the absolute leaders in the world in this field because that's the thing that they're good at. And, you know, don't try and be good at something that you, that, that you exported many, many years ago to another country that was actually better. So I think this is just domestic politics, but it has the ability to cause chaos. So far, there has been, there have been some tariffs. Imposed, but so far it's it's symbolic. So far it doesn't actually mean anything. So it has unfortunately the ability to get significantly worse. And unfortunately, South Africa will be one of the countries that will suffer the most if this does turn into something nasty because commodity prices will collapse and with that our economy will collapse. Well, that's not what we want to hear, and that's not really where we want to go. But, Wayne, thank you for that insight. Let's take a quick break. Um, When we come back, I'm going to give you a bit of a recap of the last couple of shows that I've done. Wayne needs to step out for a moment, and when we come back, we will start looking inwards at South Africa and different sectors of the economy that I want to discuss. Stay with us. We will be back in a moment. Avi on money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9. Right, as I said to you just before the break, what I want to quickly um, recap is the last three shows that I did. I had a bit of a change in the way I put my shows together. I started producing my shows again, and that was simply because um, the lady was helping me move on to other areas, and I looked at this thing and thought, maybe I need to put a personal touch back into it, whereas before we discuss what we would want to discuss and sort of prepared four shows at a time, a month at a time, I, I decided, let me rather change my focus, and fortuitously, um I was introduced to different companies and I chose them very specifically. And the, that's a company called Frank, another company called bitfund.co.za, and another company called mytreasury.co.za. What all three companies have in common is that they are young startups 
with young people behind it. Yes, most of the people are qualified, either actuaries, PhDs in artificial intelligence, um, economists, accountants. But these young guys have decided, instead of going and staying in the corporate world and building a career there, they're going to go out and start their own thing. So, yes, that's quite vanilla. It happens all the time. People go out. They start their own, their own companies. They start startups. That's the way things um, are really going these days. But what's unique is they're starting them in South Africa. And amongst, amongst all the noise, all the noise pollution that we hear all the time, the threats of land invasions, the threat of land being taken away and be expropriated without compensation, the fact that the rand has tanked a little bit, the fact that your investments have done nothing over a period of 36 months, the fact that crime is spiking, the fact that we have a government that's wishy-washy about certain issues, it's a very, very different milieu, difficult milieu to create new companies. Yet all three of these companies have done just that. They've started by young people in South Africa. And when you chat to them off air about the future, about the prospects, about where they're going, they've almost got this gung-ho attitude as if we couldn't have found a better place to have you know, sunk roots than South Africa. And when you mention this, that, and other, they say, so, that, that's politics. It'll come, it will go. You know, as a Jew um, and as someone who grew up with a family of past Holocaust survivors, you know, you're always reminded of we saw the signs, but we ignored it. Why didn't we know? Why didn't we take greater action? Why did we believe the hype that it'll pass? Why don't we believe that it's just one man, man, madman at the helm and he too will disappear and then life will continue? And yet I often get asked, why don't you guys see the signs here? What, what are you hanging around for? And yet when you speak to people like this, it almost fills you with a sense of optimism that is real. It's not hype. It's not emotional. These are chaps who could really pick themselves up and go anywhere in the world. But they've chosen to stay here. And they've really made a go of it. And of the, 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 free com- the three companies that I mentioned, Frank, Bitcom, Bitfund.co.za um, and MyTreasury.co.za, I've spent a lot of time on MyTreasury since I interviewed um, Warren Kopolovitz last week. It is the most phenomenal, phenomenal website. First of all, it's dead easy to use. As he said in the interview, an older lady who's not used to technology, who just wants to make sure that her money who's sitting in, that's sitting in the bank gets the best return, can use it very easily. I did a particular exercise for my for myself. I took a realistic case. I emailed the bank, asked them what, what rate I'm getting. I then went on and put the same parameters in, and I could get 2% more. For exactly the same amount. It boils down to about two, two and a half thousand rand a year, which is not a huge amount of money. But if you understand the whole compounding theory and the whole nature behind it, all of a sudden your money is growing on your money. And these guys have given the ability to get there without having to drive to the so-called high street, get out, go from bank to bank to bank, wait in line, speak to somebody, get non-committal answers, get a brochure that you have to decipher. Here it's all there. And the reason I'm sharing this is twofold. Number one, just to show the tremendous amount of energy and positivities in it that is in the country. And number two, to constantly knock the point home that by living with your head in the sand isn't going to make the problem go away. These days there are so many tools. There are so many radio shows. 
Advice is so accessible. Advice is so free. If you speak to any financial advisor and you say to him, I just need to sit with you or a guy or a man or a lady for half an hour just to understand a particular concept that is really significant to me and my family, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone to say, I haven't got time for you or I can't spare half an hour. Financial planners get rewarded and remunerated by the clients that they that they look after. I find it very, very um, liberating to be able to share the knowledge and not to be remunerated for it. You know, so long as it's not, you know, doesn't take away from my livelihood. But advice is there. Please go out and have a look at it, access it because it's really there. And these three companies have really showed us what's available. So I tell you what we're going to do. Wayne's just come back into the studio. Craig, can we take a quick break? Let's take a quick break and uh, finish the segment. And when we come back, we'll be back with Wayne McCurry from First National Bank. Avi on money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9 FM. Welcome back to 101.9 Chai FM. It's 29 minutes past 12. Thank you so much for staying with us. If you've joined us, we have Wayne McCurry from First National Bank in the studio. And really what we're doing, as I promised you last week, is we're just getting an overview of where we stand. We spent the first segment, segment, the first half an hour, just looking at America, looking at the Trump policies, looking at what it means. Wayne, your overall feeling is that it's not a tremendously positive thing. No. Look, the world economy is still growing, and for South Africa, what's equally as important is China's still growing, and China seems capable of sustaining the growth at, let's say, 5 or 6%. They've got all of their economic plans the way they do it. They've got a new political leader who looks as though he's going to be president for life. But that's a communist country. It's not unusual. So at least their internal politics is now sorted out. There's no more rivalry as to who's going to take over there. But... You know, even though the Chinese economy is the second biggest economy in the world, the U.S. is still the biggest economy in the world. And when you come to talk pure wealth, so not your annual income, your net asset value, your pure wealth, America is by a country mile still the biggest in the world, by literally a country mile. So what happens in America and what the American politics and what the president says is still vitally important. And we have... Rising interest rates now, so that's changed. The last 10 years we had zero interest rates, and we've got President Trump. So although the outlook, we mustn't be pessimistic, the outlook is less optimistic than what it was two years ago, a year ago. But at the end of the day, we've got growth. We've got low inflation, which means consumers can still access money. Yes, and they're not overborrowed. And they're not overborrowed, so they've got a good slap on the risk, and they realize that I want to go back to where they were before. But spending is what stimulates an economy. Yeah. It's as simple as that. And in America, they are, they are, they are spending, but uh, not so much on debt as what they have done in previous cycles. So although the cycle is changing, i.e. interest rates are going up, in previous occasions when interest rates went up, there were big debt bubbles that burst. So whether that's 2002 or 94 or 87 or 2008, higher interest rates normally brings bad news. So this time I think it will only be slightly bad news because the, the the bubbles aren't there to burst. They just simply don't exist. And that obviously means there's less chance of this round of higher interest rates bringing any economic pain. It might dampen the outlook. It might bring down the growth rate. But I don't think there will be a chance of excess pain as we've seen in other cycles where you have rising interest rates. Now, our connection to that 
pain of the yeah. international markets is basically commodities. Commodities, yes. So what that means is that stuff we pull out of the ground, yeah. whether it be gold, whether it be platinum, palladium, iron, zinc, mm. um, copper that we process, anything that, that, that's a raw material that comes out that gets exported, well, it can be agricultural products. So yes. It can be our maize, it can be our mutton, it can be our wool. That all gets affected when demand slacks. When demand goes down, yes. So if you take it very simplistically, and maybe it's quite a good example, at the start, call it 2003, at the start of the China years, iron ore, which is one of our biggest exports, was $10 a ton. At the peak of the China years in 2008, it was $160 a ton. Mm. Then in the 2008 catastrophe, it fell to 35 and it's now 70 so it's recovered about half to about half the level it was in 2008. Obviously, when it was at at $35, everyone took pain. And obviously, at 150 everyone was making a killing. Now you're making a decent return. Things are okay. However, the, the worry is, is that if uh, President Trump does carry on with all of these tariffs, that demand falls, and that 70 doesn't hold, and it goes to 50 or it goes to 40, you know, then our exports fall. Then the rand weakens, then we get inflation, then we get higher interest rates, and then our economy slows down. And then we get all the knock-on effects of, yes. you know, higher fuel prices, which means Everything higher costs across the story. Yep. Um, when, let's just go back a little bit. What I want to discuss on that particular point is oil itself. Yes. Um, not as a, a separate subject, but... One thing we know that um, fuel that we put in our cars is produced in many, many different ways. Um, and America has many different ways of producing it. So we can get Brent oil, which comes from, you know, the Brent, the, 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 the whole um, field up there on the Nova Scotia up north. Or we can get it from the ground. And mm. America has a way of fracking and also yes. using slime in order to extract. And those are only productive at a certain yes. cost. Correct. So is there an incentive to keep oil Artificially high Well yes but funny enough the incentive is coming from Saudi Arabia and Russia now They want oil high okay, Let's just talk about the oil industry at the moment In the world There's plenty of oil Today I'm very worried about five years time And we can discuss that later But today there's plenty of oil at $74 a barrel US shale gas has got excess reserves like you cannot believe, but the price must be above, call it 60, for them to actually make money and pump it. But there's plenty of available uh, gas reserves or shale reserves or whatever kind of reserves there. In fact, at the right price, they've got more oil reserves than Saudi Arabia's got. But, of course, Saudi Arabia pumps oil at, call it, $10 a barrel. Russia pumps oil at, call it, $20 a barrel. So the problem with Saudi Arabia and Russia is that the whole economy is oil-based. So although it only costs them $10 to get it out of the ground, they need $70 to keep the country running. Right. And this recent rise in oil, and it is quite recent, from 50 to 70, was engineered by OPEC, but OPEC is Saudi Arabia because they have their capacity to produce more or to produce less because they're by the far the biggest producer and Russia. So Russia and Saudi Arabia got together and said, we are going to curtail our production to get the price up. And that's exactly what happened. The price went up $20. 
Not because demand surged, demand is there, but because supply was pulled back and they got that extra $20 a barrel. Now, this is great for them, but they also know it's dangerous for them because at 70, U.S. shale gas comes on stream again and they make a, they start producing a massive amount. Now, just an immediate problem with U.S. oil is that the stuff's there. They just haven't got enough pipeline capacity to get it to the ports to export it. Okay. But it's being built at a furious rate and it'll be on in the next six months. They will have the ability to put another, I don't know, a million barrels a day into the world system. And then the price should come down. And Saudi and Russia are aware of this. You know, 70 is wonderful for them, but it brings on this competitor. Correct. Every, every single time it goes above 60, it brings on this competitor into the system. Now, also just roughly speaking so that the listeners get a, maybe a better understanding about the oil market, using very rough numbers, the world uses 100 million barrels a day of, of oil, and that grows at about, call it 1 million barrels a year. Now, Saudi Arabia has got 3 million barrels excess capacity. America has got 2 million barrels excess capacity. So you can meet the additional demand for the next 3 or 4 or 5 years. But after that, there's a serious problem because no one spent money on exploration and trying to find new new oil because the, the oil price wasn't high enough. So even if you find a massive deposit of oil in the ocean of, of South America or somewhere – it's not going to come on stream for the next three to five years. So you have this demand growing a million barrels a year, and there's enough supply to meet that extra demand for three or four years. But after that, you hit a brick wall because demand's going up, but there's no new supply coming on stream. So we don't have to worry about it today. But in five, three, three to five years' time, I... I think the oil price could be well, well over 100 again, to be honest. Well, I think we maybe do need to worry about it because that's what the South African yeah. government said about power. We don't need to worry about it yes, today. Yes, yeah. yeah. t- But on the same time, isn't there the converse happening where demand for oil is reducing? Correct, Cars yes. are smaller. Yes. Electricity is coming online. Yes. Um, it's getting more and more sophisticated. I think with uh, yeah. Elon Musk, it's hit a bit of a rough patch at the moment. Mm. But that'll pass. Yeah, look. Once again, as I said, oil's growing by a million barrels a year, but the world's economy is growing by 3%. So oil demand's only growing by 1% right. a year. That's because we are more efficient with oil. Electric vehicles and all of this, it's unstoppable, but it takes a lot longer than what you think. So also some statistics on that. The world sells 100 million new cars a year. Currently, 250,000 are electric vehicles. So at the moment, it's a quarter of a percent. It is nothing. It is minuscule. It can double each year, and it probably will double each year. But just sheer numbers, it takes a while. It will take another 10 years until one in five cars is electric. Electric vehicles are unstoppable, but, you know, it's not happening next year. Correct. Now, also, there's about a billion internal combustion engines in the world, whether that's petrol or diesel. It's about a billion internal combustion engines. And even with electric vehicles growing at doubling each year or maybe even tripling each year, the amount of internal combustion engines will peak in about 2025 at 1.3 billion engines. So although the growth rate in internal combustion engines is way lower 
than the world's economic growth rate. There are still more being produced each year until 2025 when electric vehicles truly become a bigger part of the energy mix. In other words, we need oil for at least another 5, 10 years before oil demand peaks and starts to fall. We must never forget that electric cars need to be charged. Yes. They're not solar cars. They're not solar cars. They're electric. Electric needs to be generated either by coal or by nuclear or by by diesel. Yeah. But look, I mean, also maybe people will, and when I talk, a lot of people think I'm anti-electric vehicles because I sound a bit like a, a Luddite. But you must just look at the logistics of it. So let's say tomorrow, if every single car in America was electric, America would have to produce 10 times more electricity and reticulate it, circulate 10 times more electricity than what they do now because that would be the power requirement of every single currently internal combustion engine in America becoming an electric vehicle. So that's not happening overnight. So in other words, electric vehicle, the take-up of electric vehicles is unstoppable. But sometimes when you talk to people, they think that every second car will be electric next year. It's not the case. It's going to take, it's more evolutionary than revolutionary. Correct. That's, I think, nicely put. Wayne, we're a little bit over time. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, what people really want to discuss in the SMS line is why have the investments not moved yes. for the last while? RV on money. 12 to 1 p.m. Only on 101.9. High FM. Right, Wayne, let's come back to stuff sure. that is more practical, tangible, and painful for mm. most investors. Anybody who put their money in any investment, whether it's a balance fund, an equity fund, whatever it is, the last three years is wondering where us financial planners where have taken the money, the money yeah. gone. Yeah. And um, I see one thing that frustrates me no end. You look at the facts that are generated, the returns have been X, they've been Y, and yet you look at a client's portfolio and you think, well, how does the one translate mm. to the other? Because ultimately the clients are not getting growth. Yes. So l- let's just talk around that and maybe look at some objects for the, f- okay. for the future. Quick two-minute on history. 2010 through to 2015, you had two negatives, commodity down cycle and President Zuma. Rand weakened. The only performing shares on the Rand on the stock market were the Rand head shares. But they uh, that outperformance was unfortunately compensated for on the other side by underperformance by the banks and the mining shares. So the market didn't do much. Then actually the peak, the, the worst time was actually December 2015. That was the bottom of the commodity cycle. And when finance minister Nene was fired, the weakest point in the RAND. So from 2015 until now, the RAND's actually been strengthening. Correct. And it's been strengthening. So the RAND head shares have come down, but the mining shares and the financials have gone up compensating for that. So the market's gone nowhere. So in other words, the market's gone nowhere. But understand there's been two, because of the peculiar, peculiarities of our share market, having such a big RAND hedge component and such a big mining component, unfortunately the two haven't been in sync. One's been going up as the other one's been going down. Now, where the good news is, our market is not massively expensive at this level. It's actually reasonably valued. It has been cheaper, obviously it's been cheaper after the crash in 2008, but it's not anywhere near the heady overvalued heights that we saw on, on previous occasions. In other words, should global growth hold? 
And, and that is a, that is a, an, an if. I mean, you don't know what President Trump's going to do because that's the biggest danger to global growth. But if global growth holds and President Ramaphosa puts in the correct structural changes that we need here, our economy can grow and therefore we should get a half-decent return from our share market. Obviously, then the RAND will stabilize, maybe even strengthen a little bit. I think there's potential for the South African shares. Now, simplistically, that's the retailers and the banks. Very simplistically, I think there's a potential for that portion of the share market to do reasonably well over the next three odd years. But we must also take maybe take a step back. I think a lot of people almost expect a 15% return a year from their investments, their share market, in other words. It's not going to give you that over long-time periods, eh? A decent return from the share market, given that inflation in South Africa will probably average 5%, but probably only be about 10%, not 15 over long time periods from the, from the share market. So maybe expectations must be dampened a bit. A lot of people will look at the US share market. That thing's been phenomenal for 10 years. But it's been phenomenal under a very unusual set of circumstances where up until very recently, as we discussed earlier on, interest rates were zero. Correct. Now, with zero interest rates, stock market shoots the lights out because you're an investor and you say, must I put my money in the bank and earn zero? Or must I buy government it. bonds and earn 1.5% or put money in the stock market and get a 2.5% dividend yield? You're going straight to the stock market. Correct. So that particular bull market might also be over. Yeah, I'm not saying you're going to collapse, but the big rise in American share prices could also be over. I think we've got some potential in South Africa to show a reasonable return. Unfortunately, I think it's going to be put on hold until the election next year. So I think all the uncertainties and all the things that are worrying us in South Africa and all the things that should be done, unfortunately, politics is also life. I think we're going to go through this, call it a year, maybe nine months to a year period of uncertainty until the election. I think the election, I think the ANC is going to do incredibly well in the election. I think uh, they are going to steal back all the votes they lost under President Zuma, either from the EFF or from the DA. And I think that might be a good thing for South Africa because it will give our new president his own power base. He will say, I delivered this election result. Correct. So therefore, I can do what I want to. And then he will do the right things. But until then... I think he might be a bit curtailed in what he can do and maybe what he wants to do. Because I know one of the items you want to talk about was this whole land Correct. story. Now, once again, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get any resolution, true resolution on this land issue until the election next year. Simply because from a political viewpoint, it's far more, I suppose, populist to say we are going to change the constitution to allow land expropriation without compensation full stop it sounds good it'll appeal to certain audiences it doesn't sound so good when you say yes we're going to do it but there's 10 qualifications and we've got to meet we've got to deal with this and we've got to comply with that and it won't happen there and it won't do this and it won't do that and so i think politics is going to unfortunately put this on hold 
until we until the ANC gets a majority. Then, then I think by and large the right things will be done. Where do you see interest rates going in the next year? Look, unfortunately, global interest rates are going up, and we cannot fight that trend. So they might be on hold for a while, but the inevitable direction is upwards. Global interest rates are rising. You cannot buck that trend. I don't think that our rates will go up much, you know, maybe over the next year, maybe a quarter percent, half a percent. But unfortunately, they are in a rising mode, not because of South Africa, because of overseas. Even though... Our inflation is very low. Our inflation is quite low, um, but it's also low on the reduction of food inflation post the drought. So we had 13, 14% food inflation, and it went to zero, in some cases actually negative. And that, I think, is still in the base. So our natural inflation rate isn't 4%, it's more 5, 5.5%. So that will also go up and also put a little bit of pressure on the Reserve Bank to increase interest rates, unfortunately. Wayne, can I push you to maybe certainly not give advice, but people have got a choice at the moment. They can either con- continue to sit with the portfolios they have, regardless of what they've bought, hmm. or they can move to cash, get a, 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 a given return. Given return, yeah. Um, it might fluctuate depending on the repo rate, but that will be around a very small margin. What are the pros and cons okay. of that decision? Okay, ignoring tax because paying some in some cases forty five percent of your interest on tax it takes a lot away from your return over a certain amount. Yes, yes, over a certain amount, and then you're almost guaranteed a below inflation return. Correct. Now the stock market's a funny thing. The stock market can give you nothing for eight years and then give you the most spectacular return in the ninth year, but over long time periods, unless capitalism fails. Unless Donald Trump truly messes up the world's economy with tariffs, equity beats cash Hands over down. time. Hands down. And just, I mean, the U.S. stock market did absolutely nothing for 10 years from 2002 through to 2012. Then it shot the lights out and you've had the biggest bull market almost in recorded history. So when you look at equity, a lot of people would say you must look at equity over five years. The true answer is you've probably got to look at shares over 15 to 20 years. You just don't know which year that is going to give you because returns are skewed in the share market. Share market returns can range from minus 40 to plus 200 in a year. So you've just got to, I don't know, have faith that it works. You know, and it's terrible when, as we spoke about now, you've had bad returns or flat returns for a number of years. You've just got to say, well, equity over time pays off. And, you know, the day you decide to go into cash, probably the next day the market starts going up. This is, this is the irony because it's, it's unknowable. You just do not know. I mean, I know so many people. You said after the 2008 crash, I'm never, ever buying shares again. In the 2008 crash, our share market got to 17,000. Yes. You know, 56,000 now. You know, it's, it's, it's gone up, eh? Okay, it was 32,000, then went to 17, now up to 56. Correct. But understand, you should look at shares on, quite honestly, 15 year plus. And the year you decide to go into cash because you've had nothing for five years, the next five years, the market will probably give you a return. So and then the problem is then after that five-year return, you come out of cash and buy it at the top and then it falls. <laughs> you literally, no one knows tomorrow. 
I actually think quite often I get introduced as some sort of specialist on the share market. I'm not a specialist. I don't think anyone can be a specialist on the share market. You know, if you go to a doctor or a specialist, you'll expect them to get it right at least 90% of the time. Maybe even 95% of the time. But a share market, you're lucky if you get it right 60% of the time. Because you're trying to guess the future. And there's only two golden rules in investments. One is time. And as I said, that's 15 years. And the other one is diversification. Do not put all your eggs in one basket, no matter how attractive that basket might be. It's like Bitcoin at 20,000 at the end of last year. It looked good, eh? Wow, people were making fortunes. You spoke in the dentist's waiting room or the school car park. All you heard was how much money people are playing, are making playing with Bitcoin. You know, it might be right, but put 5% of your money into it. Don't put 100%. So you've got only, there's only two true laws of investments. One is time and the other one's diversification. Fantastic. Wayne, we can sit and talk for hours, but thank you for coming in. Thank you for always being available. Thank you everybody for listening. Um, thank you for everybody for the emails and SMSs that come through during the week. I hope I get back to you timelessly. But just to let you know that there's a new system of communication in the studio called Telegram. I thought that was an old system. Apparently it's a new system. And the number there for those who are savvy is 061-895-1019. Again, 061-895-1019. Craig, thanks for pushing the buttons and for keeping me in line. Wayne McCurry, thanks for coming in once again. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll speak to you next week.